Welcome to Life and Laughs with your hosts, Jamie Kay and Johnny Sanchez. It's getting really hot in here, so we need to hurry this along. Seriously, it is getting really hot. Sounds like a hot flash to me. Hey, John, I'm serious now. <laughs> she gonna cut your hair in your sleep, buddy. <laughs> I totally I'm am. afraid that's not all she's going to cut. <laughs> that's horrible, John. Here they are, Jamie and Johnny. Welcome to Life and Laughs. I'm Jamie Kay. And I'm Johnny Sanchez. This is going to be a great show this week. Coming up, you guys are going to love our special guest. She is so much fun, Carrie Lewis. She is a singer, soon-to-be author, and the ex-wife of rock and roll icon Jerry Lee Lewis. And she's full of energy. She sure is. Before we bring her on, I thought we would talk a little about Jerry Lee Lewis. Johnny, are you a fan? Oh, man, I'm a big fan. I love his music all the way from his early rock and roll to his later country hits. He is definitely an original and the best piano player ever. He has been described as rock and roll's first great wild man. And did you know that he is the last surviving member of the Million Dollar Quartet? Yes, I did. That's incredible. And did you know that he was so good at playing the piano as a child that at nine years old, his parents mortgaged their farm to buy him a piano? That's amazing. He began playing piano with two of his cousins, Mickey Gilly, later a popular country music singer, and Jimmy Swagger, later a popular television evangelist. He made his first recordings in 1956 at Sun Records in Memphis. Crazy Arms sold 300,000 copies in the South, but it was his 19 57 hit whole lot of shaking going on that shot jerry lee to fame worldwide he followed this with great balls of fire breathless and high school confidential in june 1989 lewis was honored for his contribution to the recording industry with a star along hollywood boulevard on the hollywood walk of fame the original sun cut of great balls of fire was elected to the grammy hall of fame in 1998 and lewis's son recording of whole lot of shaking going on received that same honor in 1990 and on February 12, 2005, Jerry Lee received the Recording Academy's Lifetime Achievement Award. Joining us as a singer and soon-to-be author was married for 21 years to one of the most famous rock and rollers of all time, the killer Jerry Lee Lewis. We are happy to welcome the killerette, Carrie McCarver Lewis, and her manager, Norm Brewer. Welcome, guys. Hi, how you doing? Jamie and I are so glad you're here on the show today. We've been looking forward to this for a while. Now, you guys, where are you at today? I'm in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, Norm's in Jacksonville, Florida, and um, Norm just has talked so high of you guys, so we'll let him say hello. Hey guys, it's good to see you and yeah. talk to you guys again. Haven't really seen you since Memphis, but good to talk to you guys again. Definitely. We're so thankful for you being here today. Jamie has been nonstop looking forward to this, right? Yes. I've been very excited to talk to you, Carrie, and I have so many questions for you, and I can't wait to get started. And again, thank you so much for being here. Well, honey, it is a pleasure. Uh, I've never done a podcast. Now, my son um, is big on different podcasts. He'll call about things, and my daughter... She keeps telling me she wants her own YouTube channel, but I'm technically politically incorrect or ignorant, might be a better word, but this is my first podcast. We're so privileged that it's in the jungle room. That's so awesome for us. Yeah, right? I'm excited. Norm, tell us how you met Carrie, how your relationship developed with Carrie business-wise and as friends. 
So several years ago, we were in uh, Memphis at the Peabody during Elvis week, and uh, a mutual friend back then was coming to the Peabody and, and a couple other uh, folks, and everybody kind of decided to go to dinner. So we all went to dinner there at the Peabody and exchanged numbers. And a couple times after that, this mutual friend, he's a big Elvis collector, and he had a big party out in Texas. And of course, we all went for that. And Carrie and I kind of stayed in touch. And when she approached me, uh, you know, about some of the memorabilia that she has, and it's just piling up and piling up, I said, well, hey, you know, if you ever want to get rid of a shirt, let me know. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, she called me and said, hey, you still interested in the shirt? Well, that conversation parlayed over into a business uh, arrangement where uh, myself and uh, Stephen Schutz from Rockology teamed up to help Carrie move some of the items that she has had in her possession since she and Jerry Lee had gotten divorced. But, you know, even beyond that relationship, Carrie and I are kind of kindred spirits. We get each other in our sense of humor and that doesn't happen that often, but in this scenario, I can almost tell you what she's going to say or what she's thinking before before <laughs> it even happens, and I'm sure she feels the same way. This is very, absolutely very true. Carrie, now, you were actually born on New Year's Eve. I've always heard that babies born on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day lead an extraordinary life, and to say the least, you have. Tell us where you grew up. Well, I actually grew up in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, born and raised here. My father was a disc jockey, believe it or not, for many, many years and he was so big into the country he was responsible for bringing um, really bringing in artists like uh, little david wilkins you know he did that song one monkey don't stop no show you remember that song one yeah. monkey don't stop no show yeah my dad was real big with all that so he started actually memphis and he was actually president of the memphis music association for many years and then they started hiring him to emcee the country shows like you know, at the Ellis Auditorium, the Memphis Coliseum, places like that. And, you know, at that time, it was Freddie Fender, Johnny Rodriguez, Billy Crash Craddock, you know, the 70s groups. Yeah. And uh, and that's how we got into it. Well, you know, we just wanted to, well, actually, we wanted to be cheerleaders. <laughs> and we asked him, could we do a cheer? And I'm going to say we were like, there's three of us. So um, my youngest sister's only 13 months younger. So I'm going to say we were something like six, seven, and nine, or seven, eight, and ten, something like that. So we went on stage and did a cheer to bring him on because he was done by Bob the Dude McCarver. And of course, we were little and cute, you know, so that's why artists don't want to perform with children and animals. I mean, what are you going to do, right? <laughs> so they were like, oh, they ought to do that more often. And so my dad's like, well, you know, this is one of them pretty good. Let's let's learn a song. And that's how it started. But we were a musical family. I mean, where most people are, you know, they come in for dinner. The, the dad is all sports and all that. My dad was music. I mean, after dinner, if he wasn't playing his guitar and singing in them old cocktails back home. He was playing records. And his records were Jerry... Elvis, uh, Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins. You know, he had kind of a red-hot blue show, too, for a while. So we were just, you know, we were we were raised in that. Coming from that type of family, a musical family, what were you like as a little girl? I would assume that you were very, you were not shy at all. Was that something that you had to learn? Did you ever have stage fright? What was that like? Oh, no, I was a badass. I mean, as a kid. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? I was like, my daddy's Bob the Dean McCarver. <laughs> no, 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 I was I was the one out front. We had I had two sisters, and of course I was out front, and they were uh, on each side of me, and they were the real shy ones. And to this day. 
today, they have that shyness. But me, I, I was my dad made over. My mother used to say that. I mean, just all about the people, the fun, you know, the joy. Let's have fun. It's a party. And I mean, <laughs> even as a child, I could remember my mother saying, me, you got to calm down just a little bit because I would be so excited where my sisters were terrified or scared. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of your sisters, you've been singing since you were little. In fact, you still, don't you still sing with your sister today in a trio? We don't. Actually, we retired. We had a um, 45th, I believe it was, reunion not too long ago, show about two or three years ago. And then we just kind of retired it out. We, we were going to do a yearly reunion just because, you know, we were born and raised here in Memphis is musical roots. And it's just kind of like the thing that you do. But, you know, with different ones that had health issues and my mother was suffering uh, from Huntington's disease. And it was just something we just, just didn't get around to do. I remember last year, my older sister saying, you know, mom's not doing so well. We really ought to put this show together. But at that time, I was going through some health issues. So we just we just weren't able to do it. Doesn't mean it won't happen eventually. Who knows? But yeah, that's where we're at. Well, I also saw, I read this somewhere, uh, that you said at just 10 years old that you knew that you were going to marry Jerry Lee Lewis someday. Is that true? Absolutely. My father and George Klein became friends. And George, you know, did the uh, Christmas show every year up until he died. He always did a Christmas show in Memphis every year for the underprivileged. And it was called different things. Sometimes it was called Toys for Tots that kind of thing but I had just recorded a whole lot of shaking I was 10 years old and I thought Jerry Lee Lewis was the greatest thing ever I mean I just and why I don't know I don't know if it was the music I mean I have no idea I was I was well, it was probably nine when I started singing whole lot shaking going on. I wanted to sing that song so bad. And my parents were like, that's a little bit too old for you guys. And I said, I'm doing it. And I learned it. And it became our signature song, actually. And so at 10 years old, I recorded it. And it was probably a few months before George Klein had his annual Christmas show. Um, Daddy had given him a copy of the record. And he asked my father, he said, you need to bring the girls up there and let them do their record. So when my dad told us, we were just like, oh, my gosh. I mean, I was like, I am going to meet my hero. <laughs> I mean, it's going to happen. I mean, you know, you're 10 years old. And, and like I said, I was raised in the business. So I'm used to the business and the whole bit. But I mean, literally, there are so many important things. To give you an example, and this ties into this story, my daughter, every time something comes on TV with artists and stuff, she'll say, did you meet them? Or did you meet them? Or did you meet them? And she loves Gaga. And Gaga and Tony Bennett started doing a lot of things together for a while yeah. and they were always on TV and she was like well did you ever get to meet them and I said no honey I, I never got to meet the other one of them and I, it wasn't a month later there's a picture of me and Tony Bennett and Jerry all over the Facebook <laughs> wow. I'm looking at this picture, and God help me, I don't remember it. I, I mean, if somebody said, tell me about this picture, I have no clue. I mean, I don't. How do you not remember meeting Tony Bennett? I mean, how do you not remember that alone? <laughs> if you forgot everything else in your life. I mean, Tony Bennett. But I remember going back to that. I remember everything about that night. And that's going to be in the book, too. But I just remember when we were in the dressing room, I can tell you what we wore. My mother and my grandmother made the outfits. They were beautiful. And um, what's his name? Kiss the Danger. Good morning. Um, da, 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 just uh, passed Charlie away. Price? Yeah, Charlie he was Charlie Price. He was on the show. And anyway, we finally got to go into the dressing room. And I just remember telling him. And, and you know, looking back at that now, it's like, how do I remember that? It's like remembering when you gave birth. I mean, how is I guess that moment was so pivotal in my life. I just remember telling him, I said, I'm going to marry you one day. And, you know, just like a little girl, you know, I'm going to marry you one day. And he's like, oh, honey, you're a little bit too old for the killer. And I remember tears just staying in my eyes going, what? 
I'm only 10 years old. <laughs> what? You know, I mean, I took it serious. Like, what? I mean, I'm 10. And I, I just thought, oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was when we first met him. I just, you know, I just knew. You just was like, I just loved him from the first time I ever heard his music and saw him. Don't know why. Can't explain it myself. <laughs> how did you guys meet later on down the road? And how long did you guys date before you married? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you like no. <laughs> uh, well, uh, let's just say <laughs> that'll be in the book too. There's very few people that know that history. <laughs> um, I don't know how to quite answer that. Let's say we married in '84. I moved in in '83. Let's just say. Um, that we met each other over the years off and on and let's just say we ran into each other one night years ago <laughs> and uh, that's where it all started that nobody even knows about to this day I yeah. just told my son the other day well actually it was last summer when I was working on the book heavy with the pandemic him and my daughter actually I have a beautiful patio and they had really got out there and cleaned it up and were like alright mom you know you can sit out here and I mean for months I guess the whole June July and August anyway he was reading it it was about July I remember him saying mom <laughs> right <laughs> like where are you wondering you know <laughs> and it's in the book but you're gonna tell us we'll find out though right yeah well, we'll but I, I will say it was it was a few years before 83 <laughs> okay when i okay. and you got married that? you were just 21 when you got married how old was he at the time then 48 wow so tell us how he proposed to you was he very romantic guy tell us about that no no not at all <laughs> you know what's so funny yet <laughs> I tell you, he was, I tell you, and and I've already written all this in the book too, but it's just funny. I mean, what's sad, it's a sad thing too, because when, when, every time Jerry gets married, I mean, just pick up any, you know, choir, globe, whatever, you know, I don't know what they are anymore, star, but every time he gets married, they're always in one of those magazines, right? Yeah. And you have to go back and read it because, I mean, it's literally the same thing he says with every marriage, which I didn't realize for years. He would say, this is the one. I finally met the love of my life. You know, everyone. And I, and I remember when I was reading, after we married for some odd years, thinking, well, he said the same thing when we got married. <laughs> you know, and then I'm reading this one. You know, this was it. Have you ever? So I started going back reading him, and I'm like, he says the same thing. <laughs> I finally met the one. This, this is the one that's going to be it. This, and I'm like, hmm. And then, you know, when he married Dorothy, he would say that was the prettiest woman he ever saw in his life. I mean, he knew he had to marry her. It was the prettiest woman in his life. Then when he was in a radio station and Jane come in, he just knew he had to have her and he couldn't have her if he didn't marry her. But when Myra came along, that's when the stories changed to, well, it really didn't change. He said Jane came in the radio station and, and started seducing him. And then he said, you know, Myra was putting herself out there when her parents weren't home. And then he would say, this one did this. And I'm reading all this and I'm thinking, you know, every time he gets divorced, you hear, well, they came on to him or they wanted to get married and he didn't want to. He didn't. It's all a lie. He wanted to marry everyone. I mean, he wouldn't have married anybody had he not wanted to. End of story. Yeah. So when you hear these stories about, you know, where they say, well, he really didn't ask me. He told me. And, and that's what happened. We were sitting there. Well, I was actually on the floor 
doing fan mail, and he was laying in the bed watching TV, smoking his pipe, which, you know, I was literally right next to him. I can't tell you really the exact words, but I just remember something. He looked over, and he said, hey, he said, we need to get married next Tuesday when I get back from Canada. That's a little odd, other than just an average Tuesday, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I remember looking at him going, what? You know, I mean, I don't know if it's Tuesday. I, I mean, it could have been Friday, but it was just, I'm like, I mean, he had it already worked out in his head that he'd be home, let's say, on Sunday, and Monday we'd go get our license, and Tuesday we'd get married. I mean, he had all this worked out in his head. He goes, well, you want to get married, don't you? And I'm like, are you asking me to get married? He's like, well, I think I just told you what we were going to do. <laughs> you know, he never would do that whole, I'm going to ask you thing, right? And I was like, well, you know, when you ask me, instead of telling me, he said, I just asked you, do you want to get married next Tuesday when I get back? And, get and I'm like, we can't get married then. He was leaving like in two days. And he was going to be gone like five or six days, something like that a week. And then he'd be home a day. I'm like, how, how do you figure that's going to happen? I mean, I got to have a dress. You got to have a suit. We got to send out invitations. I mean, I don't know anybody other than, you know, just the close friends and family. But I don't have any idea about these people's addresses or phone numbers or anything of this effect. And I said, I mean, we don't even have time to do that. And he goes, well, yeah, we do. That's what we're going to do. And uh, he said, I, I want to get married and I want the colors to be purple because purple is royalty in the Bible. And I said, well, all right, we can do that. And I'm trying to think of how we can pull this off. So the next day, he said, let's just go on and get our license and we'll have them when I get back. And I remember thinking, you know, we probably should do that because if he leaves and I do all this work and then he comes home and says, what are you talking about? You know, I was <laughs> drinking that night or something, you know. Um, <laughs> hey, I mean, here, here we go. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I said, where are we going to get married at? And he said, we're going to get married at your, at your parents' house at the pool. I said, well, I don't want to get married there. I married my, my first husband there. And he was like, well, I want to get married there. I want everybody to know that this is our family. That's my family. He said, you know, I want, I want them to be a part in this. And I'm like, yeah, but them being a part in this means my mother has to take off work for a week and do it all. <laughs> Now, I don't know if she's going to, you know, be up for all that. Yeah. But anyway, we did. We got all that together. And believe it or not, we were we were going past a shopping center or something. And I saw a Hallmark store. And I said, pull in there real quick. And I went in and they had pre-done wedding invitations. <laughs> so we bought pre-done wedding invitations because I had to know who he wanted to invite. I mean, I've only been here like six months. I don't know who you don't want to do, I mean, what's important to you or not as far as that goes. <laughs> so we sat down and he made a list of all the people he wanted to invite. And that's what we did. And I mailed them when we went to the airport to drop him off. Now, I haven't asked my mother. I don't have a dress, nothing. I just know we have a license and we've mailed invitations and done. You were married to him longer than anybody, right? What, 21 years, that's I think? Correct. That's correct. It's crazy, you know, because you see, I mean, I stayed hidden as far as media and, and these type of things for over 15 years just simply because life goes on you move on and uh you know it's your history and it's good and but you know you, you just want to you just want to live life you know outside of the curtain and uh and in 15 years it's amazing how people know more about me than i do or they yeah. know more about our marriage <laughs> than i did yeah and so after jerry went to um michigan and brought our son and his family home and he started making him or getting him involved in his business and so forth i just felt like that it was time to speak up i mean i'm a firm believer god is our Avenger and Avenger, and if you just sit back and be quiet, things will not only work out, but they'll work out, as the word says, for our good and his glory. But you just get tired of hearing the same old lies over and over and over. And the one thing I have learned, you really can't defend yourself because when you step up to correct people, then it starts a mockery. Yeah, and 10 more, 10 more step up 
uh, with 10 different other. Right. Yeah, right. Right. And it's, it's not because the facts are true or false. It's because they want to be the one. They knew that. And you just busted their bubble. And not, not only did they not know that, they were liars. There's just so many ways that um, it just doesn't work out in the end because you're going to make somebody angry or mad. or So you just try to clear up the misconceptions of 15 years. And everybody says, you need to clear up these things, though, for your grandchildren. Because 20 years from now, they're going to be like, did our grandmother do all that? She didn't do all that. <laughs> uh, matter of fact, a good friend of mine, a really, really good friend of mine, musician, I was on one of the pages one day reading something. And he was like, yeah, he said, Carrie got so mad at Jerry Lee one night at the Hernando's hideaway. She threw an ashtray at him. <laughs> and I'm like, I've never thrown an ashtray at him <laughs> or anyone in my life, much less in public. I mean, I was raised as an entertainer that it didn't matter what was going on in your life. You smiled in public, period, in the story. You just didn't do that. Yeah. And you got home, you could do whatever you did to do. <laughs> yeah. But you did not care. That, that didn't happen. <laughs> that was in my raising to begin with, right? And this is a good friend of mine. So I call him up and I'm like, hey. I just read when you posted so-and-so. Can you tell me when that happened? And he was like, well, you know, Carrie, I wasn't there. That's what so-and-so told me. Oh, no. I said, so you repeated it, and you put it out there in social media that I'm a violent person in public, have no integrity, and you didn't even see it. Mm -hmm. And he was like, Carrie, I'm here. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I said, you know, that ain't cool. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it's just like you, you continue to read this stuff and you think, what is it with these people? Just, just, just the drama just sounds so great that it just trumps anything good. You know, you know? I, and I think I that people tell their own stories so long that they actually start to believe their own version of what happened. It may be exaggerated. or And, and sadly enough, if people like you don't write your books and don't tell your story, most of what we hear, half of it's fiction oh listen i mean you know there's there's one little guy he's a little english boy and um he's just a sad little case and he runs one of the facebook fan club sites he bought an autographed piano key from the gift shop oh years and years ago i mean we're talking you know before i even left so maybe like 2001 or two something like that and when jerry's daughter took over the management she told everybody that those signatures were not jerry the sad part of that is is you know he sat there with boxes of keys for weeks signing them you know and really just thought that was the coolest thing of all because we were using them as a gift in a gift package for his birthday convention that year. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, it was sad to me that he had put so much energy and effort into those for his fans for his daughter to start telling people, oh, that, that's not his autograph. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, sadly, this little old kid, I must say he's, you know, probably was 16, 17, 18, 19, young kid. He actually believed her. And, and rightfully so. I mean, that's, you know, his daughter telling you that that's fake. Mm -hmm. And so he started wearing my father out on email. Because my father read the gift shop at the time. You know, this is not real. His daughter told me that he didn't sign these. And I mean, he was just unstoppable. Yeah. And this went on for months after I was gone, you know, after the divorce. So you're talking two or three years later. And my dad said, Terry, I don't know what to do but to block this kid. He said, but I really feel sorry for him because, I mean, you know, he's on a roll that, by gosh, somebody's going to make this right. Why, and, uh, why did she say that they weren't real? Was there a motivation behind that? Or did she believe uh, you know, that they, they did. No, she didn't believe it. It was just, you know, it's the family dynamics. You know, Jerry and I married. We had a child, and then we had a guardianship of a child for three years during that time. And, you know, we were just a happy family dynamics. And when you're in the entertainment business like that, it is so hard to have that anyway. But Jerry had finally achieved it. And I think as she was exactly my age. And I think being that she was my age and never married, never had any children, never really dated much, really, that it just kind of got to her that she wasn't a part of that dynamic, you know. But she was a part of that dynamic. But she was looking at it from a child's standpoint of view. 
you rather than a grown woman. And she didn't like it. She didn't like it at all. So sadly, this guy mailed his <laughs> autographed key that he bought paid for back to my father. So my father's like, not only is he still wearing me out, he said he has sent the key back. And I'm like, how sad, you know. But at this point, I'm like, enough's enough. It's been going on months now. And he said, now he's accusing me of signing it. And I said, you know, Dad, just do this. Say, you're right. You know what? You're right. I signed it. You sent it back to me. Thank you. End of story. So that's what he did. And then here we are years later. This kid, you know, is the president of one of these fan clubs facebook pages and he tells everybody that my daddy forged his signature on this piano key and that it wasn't jerry that signed it and it's just the saddest thing and i even tried to talk to him you know because i'm all about peace you know what's the root of the problem and i tried to talk to him to say look i'll send you the key back we still have it and this was like a couple of years ago even maybe three or four years ago and he wasn't having it you're a liar it's a fake i can't believe y'all did that and and still it still spreads that venom so you know there's some things you just can't work out you just have to let them know you were a singer and you actually opened up for some of jerry lee's concerts right we did we did a few more before we married and then when we married well, everybody knows Jerry and his jealous reputation. He would say, I want you to go on and open up and do a song. It started actually in Sweden on a tour there. I think it might have been even in 87. And I'm like, you know, Jerry, I don't want to do this. I just didn't want to do that. You had to know living with Jerry, you know, really wasn't no day at the beach. <laughs> so you just had to pick your pros and cons. And, you know, by the time that he got ready to go on stage, you're exhausted for making that happen. The last thing you want to do is go on stage. Yeah. But he got to where that's, he wanted me there so he could see me because that worked out for him uh it also bought him more time so you know kenny could do a song and the bass player could do a song and then carrie could go out there and do a two or three songs because his contract which promoters didn't understand it until they actually got to see it was it would say something like let's say jerry Lee lewis and his killer band or his all-star band or whatever perform for 60 minutes so you realize that wording means everybody combined it doesn't mm-hmm. mean jerry's going to put on our show. So he might be behind stage or the road manager say, hey, Jerry's going to do five more minutes. It didn't matter because the contract said 60 minutes. So you know, sometimes we might have ended up doing 20 and 25 and he did 40 minutes and the promoter would be like, oh, I'll pay for an hour show. Well, you've got an hour show. Was he very demanding of you and the other band members, especially you being his wife? How did that dynamic play out working for someone you're married to? Very hard. It was very hard to um, to balance all of that. You know, it was, it's a very hard thing to do, especially where he was in his happiest years of performing you know we had the tours going on at the ranch we had the gift shop we had the conventions every year we had the fan club magazine i mean we had all these dynamics besides his show and then we started incorporating merchandise into the concerts so here i am doing concerts and then i'm getting everything you know jets hotels whatever took place merchandise and then making sure our house stays clean for the tours the pool stays clean for the tours the insurance is paid inventory's up to date the bank magazines get out on time. I mean, we just had so many dynamics going that during that time, he was just the happiest I'd ever seen. But it was just so much for one person. I remember my son, when he went on his first tour with his dad after we were divorced, he was like, Mom, he said, Daddy had five people doing what you did. He said, and I asked him, why is all these people here when Mama used to do all this by herself? Crazy. crazy. So you're almost like, not only did you manage the household, you were kind of a manager or an assistant on stage and had your own thing to take care of as well. What was life like at home then as opposed to being on the road with Jerry? How was he at home? He's, he's pretty much quiet at home. You know, you hear a lot of people say, oh yeah, we hung out at the ranch and we partied. No, you didn't because he didn't allow anybody to drink in the house. 
really? he, you know, it just was, oh, no, you were not, you know, if you walked up to the door with the beer, he would have asked you to leave that outside. Because, wow. you know, he had a family. No, he, so it's amazing to me, when, other than when we held, you know, like his birthday parties and barbecues and stuff, other than the events, I called that event. But you'll hear people say, oh, yeah, I hung out the weekends at Kimberly. No, you didn't. <laughs> I mean, no, you didn't. So it yeah. just didn't happen. But at home, he's very, very quiet and very reserved as far as, you know, he's not up and down all day. And it also depends on two seasons. Winter was, for some reason, depresses him a lot. You know, he's used to going outside during the day and jet skiing in the summer and getting a tan and because we have jet skis on our lake and he'd go out there and jet ski and take, well, he raised Lee on a jet ski. So, you know, it just really depended. The older Lee guy, it was a fight about school. One of us has got to break his arm because he would not even go to school and I'm trying to pull him out of the bed. And, you know, <laughs> just, Jamie's that way every day. We, we have to hire people to go pull Jamie out of bed every day. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, you know, Hey, Jay, hey Carrie, just, hey, you yes, mentioned sir. Hernando's hideaway a while ago. Let's go back before you and Jerry got married. A lot of people don't know it. You actually, in your band, y'all were pretty much regulars over at Hernando's, and, and there was a lot of Jerry Lee moments there. Tell a couple stories, like you'd be in there playing, and you back then you might have another boyfriend or whatever, and then Jerry would come in. A lot of people don't know the Hernando hideaway story and really all the music that came out of there, but you actually were one of the house bands on a regular rotation uh, over there, and then Jerry Lee would come in, and that's kind of where you guys saw a lot of each other even before you were married, if you want to share some of oh, that. It's, it's, it's amazing. Hernando. Well, I mean, I was known back then as Miss Hernando's Hideaway. I was the only girl singer or female singer or vocalist, whatever you want to say that ever actually performed there as a house band on a regular basis. Now, other okay. females would come in, maybe do a week here and there, but yeah, he would come in there, and of course, the band would just, just they would just sigh when he'd come in, because they'd be like, <laughs> they'd make jokes like, well, Carrie don't have to work tonight for her money, because he's going to come in and get on the piano and play for four hours. <laughs> yeah. So I'd just be sitting there like, okay. Uh, or they, they'd be like, everybody needs to go to the bathroom now. The killer just walked in. We're not getting a break. <laughs> so, but what's so sad is they have new owners of the Hernandez Hideaway now, and and they just literally put out a bunch of stuff. Like if anybody has any memorabilia for Jerry Lee being there or the house bands or anything like that. And I contacted them and they would not have anything to do with me at all. Wow. And uh, it was sad because I had so much memorabilia I wanted to help them with and give to them and bless them, you know. But they just didn't want no part of that. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I was named Mrs. Hernandez Hideaway. <laughs> you yeah. don't want any memorabilia, all right? You know, you asked for it. And out of the time of my heart, I was answering that plea. Mm -hmm. So it is what it is. But, I mean, we had some good days there, that's for sure. Believe it or not, I was married to Elvis's first cousin's son at that time. Mm -hmm. Bill Mann. Okay, oh. yeah, yeah, okay. So, when I was married to him, I would hear a lot of the Elvis stories they had. But anyway, my first husband was Davy Mann, and so he was Elvis's second cousin. And it was so funny. I tell you, look, well, this doesn't have anything to do with Hernando's Hideaway. But I was married to him when I was first started at Hernando's Hideaway. But we had been separate, separated and living apart for over a year when Jerry actually started coming in. And so one night I was singing, and he was at the dressing room. And if you're looking at a stage, let's say I'm on the very end of the stage with my mic up front, and the bass player was behind me, and then next to the bass player, literally where he could go and open the door was the back dressing room. But nobody was allowed in there because that was our owner's dressing room. That was where he'd come in and go out and back. So it was called a dressing room, but it wasn't really for us. And so that's where Jerry Lee would come in. And you wouldn't know he was there unless the security guard saw him pull up and came and forewarned us, or he came through the back door. And one night he came in and he's opening the back door. He's all full of himself. And he's like, Carrie, Carrie, Carrie. 
and I wouldn't answer him. I mean, I'm singing. I'm working. You know, <laughs> shut the door. And, uh, well, he kept on, and he kept on, and he finally, Kenny had, uh, you know, little trinkets sitting around back there and everything. He had a brass bell sitting back there with a wood handle. He took that bell and threw it at me. Now, I'm singing. I'm performing. Threw it at me, and it hit my ankle, and it busted <laughs> it open. My pantyhose, blood's going everywhere. Oh and, oh. and Lewis is behind me, the bass player, and he leans up behind me. Well, when he hit me, I was like, oh my God. I mean, I'm on stage and I'm screaming. I'm like, are you kidding me? And there's this big ass bell, you know? So it's just like, Kerry, he just throws that bell at you. And I said, he said, he said, there's blood coming out the back of your ankle. <laughs> I was so, I was just like, so I ran to the restroom, which is literally right there too, and cleaned it up and everything. And then I came out and went to the back to the dressing room. And I said, really? I said, you know, I'm trying to perform. Would I do something like that to you on stage? Why would you do that? He said, all you had to do was answer me. <laughs> I'm like, I was performing. <laughs> <laughs> what did you want me to do? Turn around and go, hey, honey. I mean, I'm performing. <laughs> so I still have that bell to this day. Oh, that's awesome. That is, that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, I still, still have that bell. But I mean, there's just a, you know, there's just a lot of different ones you could say here and tell all day. But he definitely is one of a kind, and he is a romantic person. I will say that if you're in his eyesight and he's got his eye on you, he can be a very heartwarming, loving man. I mean, he well, obviously he was. Most of society, they look at him as this rock and roller drinker, but. I've read that plenty of times, that he did have a soft heart. He's very religious at home, like it's a persona on stage. How much is the man on stage like the personal man that you experienced living with him at home? Oh, it just depends on what day it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it depends on if he wants to be the killer that day. Yeah. It just depends on how much left in the stash. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, you know, it just depends on how wild and crazy he wants to be that day. You just never know. But, I mean, it really is a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde on one hand, but on the other hand, they are really the same human being. I mean, what you see on stage is really who he is, but then there's the softer, kinder side, the more loving side, because on stage, he's performing for his fans, and I've probably never met another artist. I mean, I'm sure I have and just don't know, um, but loved, loved his fans. I mean... He is all about his fans. At the end of the day, that's a fan. That's a fan. You know, don't hurt my fans or don't talk to my fans or don't. I mean, he's all about the fans because he comes from old school and he, you know, he's a smart man. He knows that where he's at is because of his fans. Yeah. But simply, you know. I heard that you guys have a lot of animals and I'm curious about that. At one time, you guys had like up to 10 chihuahuas. Is that true? And if oh. so, can you talk a little bit about that? It is true. We had 40 something dogs. Oh my um, God. At one time. Yes. At one time. Wow. Um, Where, what where'd you put them all? Well, we had a 30 acre ranch. Okay. Okay. You know, so there was there was two lakes and you know, we had horses, there was a barn, stables, corral. You know, I mean like I said, in the in the in the midst of our marriage, we really had the whole thing going on just beautifully. And we had my grandmother passed away. And she had this most beautiful black child. And at the time, when I married Jerry, he had a dog named Blackie. And Blackie was kind of like a shepherd lab, more of a lab, but you could tell he had shepherd in him. And it was a male, and my grandmother's child was a female. And so when she passed away, nobody could figure out what to do with her dog. And I said, I'll take it. It would love to run out there at that ranch. So within six months, we start having puppies, chow, uh, lab mix. And they were the most beautiful animals you ever saw in your life. And I mean, this went on for several years until 
Blackie passed away. And of course, then all of them started breeding. But we actually gave most of them away. We never kept but maybe one out of a litter or something, every three litters or something over the years. But what happened was we came back from Ireland and somebody had come over with a little chihuahua. And Jerry was like, no, I would like a little dog like that. That's something, you know, you could take with you. <laughs> and <laughs> like, oh, no, we take enough of stuff. See, we don't need a dog. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, our son was just all about this dog. And this girl was like, well, you could get it at this place wherever we went to. And we went there and they had two left and they were brother and sister. And one of them was just the ugliest little thing you ever saw. And one was just the most beautiful thing you ever saw. Well, of course, our son wanted the ugliest one, who was a male, and wanted to name it Baloney. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I'm not paying $500 for an ugly dog to call Baloney. <laughs> so... You know, we're going to get this beautiful dog and call her Diamond. And so that's what we did. And, oh, he pitched a fit and cried. And Jerry was like, you didn't get him the one he wanted? I said, well, he was an ugly little pitiful thing. He wanted to call him baloney. I mean, I just couldn't, that just didn't add up to me. <laughs> so he's like, well, I guess I guess this might add up for you. Before they're closed tonight, that dog better be here. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. I didn't send you after a dog for you. I sent you after a dog for him. <laughs> so we went back got the ugly little dog, and we did not call him Baloney. We called him Onyx, so we had the fame of jewels there, Diamond and Onyx. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's how it started, and then they had a, a puppy. Jerry named it Topaz to keep with the family jewels, and Jerry literally, believe it or not, it was Lee's birthday. I don't know what day it was. It was Lee's birthday party, and she had started going into labor. It looked like she was having trouble, and Dr. Franklin, you know, he took care of Elvis's horses and all our horses and animals, and I called him. He said, I'll I said, man, I, we've got to get to Lee's birthday party. It was at the skate rink, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was in January toes. So he came out and got Diamond. And I said, call us. We tell us what's happening or whatever. Well, you had to know Dr. Franklin. He was just the sweetest man. And he brought Diamond and the puppy to Lee's birthday in a big old huge box and everything. And Jerry was like, I'm taking them home. Now, that's the love of him, the, the song. He said, they, they need to go home. I'm taking them home. And, well, I mean, I didn't want him leaving the birthday party, but it was really nothing we could do. So he did. He took them home and meant Lee got a ride home and when we got home he had him a nice bed made and he's like that dog is mine and i mean he literally kept that dog with him till he died and he grieved something awful when he passed away i mean something terrible my son said it just broke his heart in two. But that's how. And then how we actually multiplied was we were in Tunica one night, which is about an hour from our ranch. And we got home and we were watching, I don't know, the late news or whatever. And it was crazy. This big newscast came on and we had missed it because it was like on the 10 o'clock news and we were in Tunica. But it said something like while Jerry Lee was doing a whole lot of shaking in Tunica, his neighbor was doing a whole lot of shaking with his dogs. Well, when you pull out our driveway at the ranch, just a little sideways, across the street you pull into the neighbors and apparently unbeknownst to us i mean all they had to do was tell us our dogs were going in there and eating her flowers or her i, I don't know tearing up her flower beds or something well i mean it's the first we'd heard of it we hadn't seen any of them out the fence or the gate ever they're always up at the house or by the lake so she had went and got a cage and she's t now she's telling this on live tv she went and bought a cage and put meat in it to trap them Oh, no. Mm -hmm. oh, when they came over there to do that, and then she was calling the pound. Oh, my gosh. And we're both like, are we seeing this? Is I mean, are... Are we, did we just, so of course, we're trying to get the number to the TV station. We're calling them saying, hey, we're trying to figure out what dogs we're missing because we did have a lot of dogs. And we had to go get them out of the pound. I mean, she had like four of them trapped in these cages. But she, I mean, she's telling them she put meat in a cage to trap them when they came over there. Well, we didn't even know they were going over there. We got gates. We didn't, I mean, we couldn't figure out how they were getting out. 
And so, of course, we wouldn't got to buy the pound. I mean, they all know us. They weren't fixing to hurt our dogs. And so we had this big sign made. Well, I did. It said, God made the animals, love them, don't hurt them. And uh, it was up at the ranch until a year or two ago. I don't know what happened to it. But wow. um, Dr. Franklin would come out every month, and he would check them all. He had them all tagged, so we know we knew how many we had. And, I mean, we took care of them, and it just kind of became a refuge. Goodness. Well, let's go back a little bit because, I mean, you had some challenges in your marriage not long after. You got married in 84, and then while living in Memphis, Jerry Lee became deathly ill, wasn't expected to live. In fact, you actually performed mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and saved his life. Talk about that time in your life and Jerry's life. Well, you did your homework, didn't you? (laughs) Yes, ma'am. I mean, that goes way back. Well, we were living downtown on Wagner Place. We had, shortly after we got married he had said that there was a lot of things fixing to come up and of course i'm new to that size of the industry right and he had some things coming up something with the class of 55 now it wasn't a done deal at that time but it looked like that was going to come to fruition and a couple other things and he said you know it would be nice if we had a place in memphis that would be easier to get to sun records and when all that starts to come about and of course my mother worked downtown so i could be closer to her and the family and i said well you know i mean whatever you want to do so we did and he had a bleeding ulcer we didn't know he had one and he was smoking his pipe watching tv and i heard him choking and when i heard him choking i went in there and he was literally throwing up I don't think I can describe it. It looked like coffee grounds. It looked like red coffee grounds, oh, like man. blooded coffee. And of course, I'm grabbing a garbage can and, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to call 911. And so I didn't get 911. But at that time, when I'm trying to do all that, he literally just went like somebody pushed him straight back and his teeth locked up and his eyes rolled back in his head. Mm. And so I grabbed him. I had the phone still in my hand. And so I did dial 911. I grabbed the pipe and I couldn't get his mouth open. So I took the pipe and I jabbed it in the side of his mouth and just kept pulling the pipe up and down till he opened his mouth. Wow. And when he opened his mouth, I started giving him CPR and then he started doing the same thing, hemorrhaging. Mm-mm. And um, then they were there. Of course, by the time they got there, he'd done throwed his guts out and they were like you got to come with us now and he's like no i'm gonna be okay they had the garbage can of the stuff and they're like this is a bleeding ulcer you are not going to be okay at some point in the night this is going to happen again it's going to kill you you're going to die i mean it's as simple as that and i'm like well then we're going he's like i'm not going and i said well y'all can take him anyway right and they're like no i mean as long as he's coherent and telling us he's not going we can't take him. No, oh, man. And of course, this is all new to me. You know, this is all new to me. Yeah. And um, so the head fireman or whoever he was, I, I don't know who they were, but they were the most beautiful, sympathetic, warmest people. He took me outside and he said, listen, he's going to die. And he's going to die tonight. He said he cannot live from this if he doesn't get help immediately. So here's what we're going to do. We've gotten permission not to leave. He said, we're going to sit out here in front of your door. He said, leave it cracked. And he said, when he starts throwing up, just scream. We'll hear you. Oh, and that's wow. exactly what happened. And I mean, I'll never forget those guys. I mean, they were like, we're not leaving because it's going to happen. It's going to happen soon. And he's going to die. And so I, I, I was just, it was, I, I can't even, there's no words. So it happened and I screamed and they had him in and out of there so fast. I mean, it was just such a blur. I mean, I just remember he started doing it. I screamed and it was just total chaos. Boom, boom, bang, bang, gone. Wow. And, and them telling me, you know, just to meet them at the hospital. And I remember when I got there, you know, they said it didn't look good at all. Okay. Of course, we had been married long. I don't even know if we'd been married a year. 
I can't, I don't know if it was in 84, 85, 86. It could have been two years. I just don't remember. But anyway, I remember them coming to me at four o'clock in the morning telling me that he was not going to make it. Mm. And that I needed to call the family. And here you are, thinking, what, no. 21 years old, 22 years old, somewhere around there. Uh, yeah. 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 And I mean, what do you mean he's not going to make it? There's no chance. And I remember that doctor being just so, just so, so, you know, um, trying to help me. I remember him saying, well, honey, there's always a chance I'm not God. He said, but medically, I just don't see that happening. Mm. And I said, okay. And I'm a God-fearing woman. Even then at my young age was I a God-fearing woman. And I just started praying. And I remember calling everybody i remember calling his sister and his daughter and i remember his daughter telling me this wasn't the first call she'd ever got like that and it was four o'clock in the morning to call her in the morning when everything when the sun come out and i remember thinking well what am i going to do now you know and so i called my parents everybody you know i'm sitting there like oh, we're fixing to plan a funeral I don't, I don't know how to plan a funeral i mean it was just chaos and i remember getting to go in the icu room and it was the saddest thing ever i just remember there was a clock. He was laying in a bed, and it was a white room. Nothing really there, but just his equipment and stuff. It was a very private room, and he could barely open his eyes. He couldn't move at all. He was, like, almost paralyzed. But there was a clock directly on the wall in front of his face. Directly. I went in. He couldn't talk, you know, but very stressed, you know, like that. And it was just so sad. But basically, I won't go into how he made that sound, but he was like, call Phoebe. And I was like, yeah, I, I called her. I said, she's coming. Of course, she already told me she wasn't, but I wasn't going to tell him that. And he said, how long? And I said, I don't know. She's going to call me back and tell me. She's trying to make arrangements. I'm sitting here thinking, oh, dear God, she has got to get here. So I remember calling her back. And I said, look, they said, unless God intervenes, this is over. And the only thing he said to me was, call you. You've got to get here. I'll see what I can do. You know, you just don't know. This is normal behavior for him. Mm. You know, we just went through this in 81 in July when his stomach erupted. This is just what he does. And I'm like, well, wow. okay, I've never went through And this is all I know, okay? So the next time I got to go in there, I lied. I said something like, let's say it was 6 in the morning. And he said, what time, Phoebe? It was little short words like Phoebe time or something. And I remember making it like 11 o'clock that night, right? Mm -hmm. And let's whatever time it was, he had both his hands and he's doing this. Let's say it's 6 o'clock. He's going 7, 8, 9. And he's trying to figure out how many hours to hang on. Yeah. So she gets there. Wow. Goodness. But everybody saved him. I still say this day. Everybody saved him because he said, and after he counted those hours out, he was like, I'm going to try to make it. I'm going to try to make it. Mm -hmm. And I think, I really believe that her doing that, I believe it saved him because, you know, he wanted to hang on till she got there and he was fighting, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened. And he came through it. You just got to say that if you don't believe there's a God, look at Jerry Lewis's life. Yeah, really. I mean, it just has God written all over it. Mm -hmm. I mean, all over it. It says God. God. I mean, you can't not look at this man's entire life and everything he has survived and not believe that there's not a God. I mean, because yeah. there's no other answers for him. I remember when he had a stroke, my son called me, and I won't go into all of what he said or whatever, but I said, let me tell you something, son. Your daddy is already praying for himself. Your daddy loves the Lord so much. He is already praying for himself. He's already interceding for himself. 
So let me tell you what you do. You go in there and you lay hands on your daddy and in your mind, you don't have to say it in front of people and you just say, you know, daddy, in the name of Jesus, you got to get up out of this bed. You know, you have to, you know, Jesus loves you and that we're not to be going through this and I'm speaking the word over you and you're to rise up out of this bed, daddy. And he did. <laughs> there is so much more from Carrie that you will not want to miss. So be sure to join us next week for part two and the exciting finale of our interview with Carrie Killeret Lewis. Search for Life and Laugh wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to like, subscribe, and share this episode. Thanks for joining us. Until next time. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. Oh my goodness, please stop. We want people to come back. 